Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, our guest is David Middleman. David is the CEO of Authram, the first genomics-based forensics company. David is also a serial genomics entrepreneur and, like Genialis, is based in Houston. In this episode, David explains his vision for disrupting the state of the art in forensics identification using genomics, deep sequencing, and machine learning, a bit of a departure from the usual themes around medical applications of data and data science. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for Talking Precision Medicine. It is my great honor today to have with us uh, David Middleman. David is CEO at Othram, Inc. Othram is a uh, genomics forensics company uh, based in Houston, Texas. Part of why this is so exciting to me, as many of you know, Genialis grew up in Houston. And at the time, there was not a whole lot of other biotech innovation going on in the city. But David is a consummate entrepreneur and has been blazing trails from his early days uh, at Baylor College of Medicine to some of the the kind of earliest and greatest um, genomics startups in the Houston ecosystem. So David, thank you for joining us. Uh, This really is an honor. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. Tell us about your new venture. What are you working on? So my my new venture, the company is called Authram. And uh, and what we do is we are are trying to build out DNA testing. And DNA itself is kind of like the future biometric. Right now, when you think about biometric, you're thinking about fingerprints and and face recognition. And and we want to position genomic signatures and uh, and the genome sequence as another biometric. And our application at Authram is to apply it towards, uh, you know, the pursuit of solving, for example, cold cases. So situations where you have unidentified remains, there's really no way to kind of work that case to completion. Maybe just some bones that someone found by the side of the road. And being able to use genetic analysis to describe, or in some cases, identify that person can bring closure to families and and also to the case in general. So that's that's kind of the area that we're in now. You've probably heard about this genetic genealogy craze that's kind of been growing in the in the law enforcement circles and in the press. Uh, we work on those kind of projects as well. There's a lot of applications to using this, but at the core, it's a technology for being able to use genetic sequence as a biometric to to identify people. Very cool. So on Othram's website, your your tagline is justice through genomics. Talk to us a bit about that. So who are your your key, I guess, customers or stakeholders? Um, I would say right now our our key customer is going to be either uh, law enforcement. They've got a case, like I said, maybe a case that's gone cold and they're looking to bring it to conclusion. Uh, we also have other customers in the form of labs, so other crime labs, other folks that are, are trying to work cases, perhaps are using conventional genetic testing and they're not getting the information they need and they want to do something more exhaustive and we offer that service. So we'll work in a sort of B2B capacity with other laboratories, but we also work directly with law enforcement. We, um, we also have some historical projects that we do, uh, and so those might be directly with city governments, academic researchers. So that's kind of the current spectrum of, of clientele. Interesting. And when you talk about genomics here, um, are you thinking about this in terms of you know individual marker, like pardon the ignorance, like a 16S type profile? Or are you looking at, at sort of whole genome or whole exome or sort of broad genomic spectrum type analysis? 
Um, so we're, we're looking at the whole genome, but we do all sorts of different analysis through there. So uh, maybe I didn't hear your question correctly, but, but we're doing... Yeah, we're the, the qu yeah so the, the question is, I guess, how much are you trying to sequence? Like, how much sequencing data are you looking to generate, say, per case or per sample? And, you know, so what, what is the value proposition of, of looking at a broad swath of the genome rather than kind of single marker? Why does this make a better biometric than a fingerprint? Yeah, so there's two questions there. The first question is, how much are we trying to sequence? So especially when we're working with a, a case where there's very little DNA evidence left, um, we'll want to we'll want to get as much sequence as we can get, and so that's that's often dictated by the sample. Um, we can attempt whole genome sequencing, but as you know, depending on the quantity and condition of the sample, we, we may have areas that drop out, so we don't necessarily get every inch of the genome, but we'll get as much genome-wide information as we can, along with uh, you know markers that are informative on the Y and the mitochondrial DNA. The other question, though, related to you know why why do we want to work with all the markers? So Right now, the, the state of the art in, in crime testing is CODIS. CODIS is uh, you know, based on a 20 marker system. It used to be 13 markers, before that it was even less. And, and CODIS is really good for confirming identity. So these markers are, are STRs, they're, they're length polymorphisms that if you, uh, if you measure these 20 markers in you and myself, will probably vary at at least some of them in, in how many copies of this repetitive sequence we have. And, and that lets you set basically a signature for your identity versus mine. And CODIS is really useful. It's, it's a, it's a court-approved test. Um, there's accreditation around it. And what it allows you to do is to determine if you are somewhere. So you can match a sample back to you, something from a crime scene, and say you are at the crime scene. If, you, uh, if, you, if you're trying to connect families back to a remain or a missing person, you can use CODIS there in some cases. But the problem with CODIS is that you're only looking at 20 markers. So you don't have a lot of, beyond identifying yourself and maybe like a direct sibling and a parent, you don't have a lot of power to detect relationships. So if you and I were brothers, for example, we might share less than half of our DNA. Perhaps you're more like mom and I'm more like dad. And so right. with less than half of our DNA shared and 20 markers measured, you know, there's less than 10 markers that are going to be connecting us. And if you were my cousin, then you really can't use CODIS at all. So, so one limitation of CODIS is that you don't get to match really much beyond yourself. And that's a limitation. If you think about it, the size of the database you need is very large if each data point allows you to access basically just that data point. And in, in, in a genealogical database, which has more kind of genome-wide information, uh, you can match quite distantly to folks. And, and so there, you don't need as much data. You, you need fewer data points because you have more data per data point and you're able to bring more value from such a database. The other, the other problem with CODIS is that uh, you know, CODIS, CODIS will atrophy over time. Since you can only really identify yourself or a super direct relative, Generally, CODIS is populated, not exclusively, but generally by people that have been convicted of a crime. The idea is that if they convict another crime, they can be tied back to it. But as they say, crime is a young man's game. So, you know, after a decade or so, you kind of age out crime. You know, either you get caught, you die, you retire. And so, so the database constantly needs to be updated, right? Data points in CODIS are constantly atrophying. And um, in a genealogical database, because you can connect with so many people, each data point, regardless of whether they are even still alive, they become part of like the, the societal like framework or scaffold for connecting everyone to everyone. So a genealogical kind of database and one that kind of assesses genome-wide information will appreciate in value. So um, anyways, not to, not to go off on the tangent, but those are some of the reasons, you know, if you, the biggest issue with CODIS is again, like it, it will confirm an identity, but if you're not in CODIS, it's not gonna find you. So right. I like to tell people, if you're looking for someone, then you're gonna wanna do what Authorum does. Authorum's really good at finding people, 
CODIS mm -hmm. is really good at legally and compliantly confirming their identity. So it's not really one versus the other. It's that, sure. you know, what we do complements CODIS. And so if you can solve a crime or figure out a cold case, you know, using CODIS, then great. But, you know, if, if someone dies on the road from exposure, if you have a child victim, right, they're, they're probably not in CODIS. And so now yeah. CODIS is not of value to you. So what do you do? And historically, what you do is you either leave it as a cold case forever Mm -hmm. Or if it's if it's a crime, you kind of wait and hope that they'll keep committing the crime and someone mm -hmm. else will catch them and assign an identity. And so now we have a third option, which is this kind of expanded genome-wide testing that we do at Authram that allows you to pursue an identity in spite of the fact that they may not have already been, you know, convicted or cataloged in the right. FBI database. Fascinating. There, there's some really big issues that I'd like to get into, but you'd mentioned something that, that struck me, uh, that CODIS is court approved and, and accredited. And so we talk on this show a lot about, you know, FDA regulations around diagnostics or, or drug development and those kind of burdens of proof. What are the sorts of um, regulatory hurdles and burdens of proof that, that Authram faces? And, and maybe you've actually cleared some already or that you're working towards? Well, much like in the medical space, there are there are accreditations and programs you go through on the forensic side as well. You know, the, the simple analogy is like in the medical space, suppose we start a medical lab tomorrow and we want to do PGX testing, right? So we're going to test for pharmacogenomic markers and we've got 100 SNPs and, uh, and we launch this test. We can validate, you know, if we were using maybe a chip-based method, we could even, or a real-time PCR-based method, we could, we could literally validate every one of those 100 probes, submit it to CMS, get COLA or CAP to sign off on it, and we've got, you know, a regulatorily approved medical test for PGX. Same is true if you did carrier screening or, or some kind of cancer testing. The challenge is if you're doing whole genome sequencing in a medical capacity, how do you validate that, right? That's something that CAP has kind of struggled to define. Like, what, right. what is the process to validate whole genome sequencing? The current framework kind of asks that you validate every individual test, and they consider a test a measure of like one position in the genome. So there's a similar situation in forensics as there is in medicine in that, you know, you can, you can pursue accreditation for the CODIS testing because there's 20 finite markers. You can pursue accreditation for mitochondrial testing. Right now, the, the state of the art is, uh, is, is what's called HVR1 and HVR2 testing. There are two major marker sets in the mitochondria. But much like in medicine, there's not really a good way to, to accredit or validate whole genome sequencing. So you can power with whole genome sequencing and then validate individual panels that make sense. And I, I will tell you again, you know, ultimately whole genome sequencing is something that's going to be an investigational tool, as is all the genealogy. And so you right. know, if you look at, for example, like the Golden State Killer case, mm -hmm. so what happened there is they had DNA from a crime scene, they worked up a profile, they used genealogy to identify a likely suspect. And when they identified that person, they actually went back and used the conventional court-approved CODIS test to match that individual who is still alive at the time to the crime scene. And so, and so now in court, you know, they, they use the genealogy, the, the research sequencing as an investigational tool, but they've come to court and indicted on the basis of a CODIS test that connects them and shows that the 20 markers of the crime scene from decades ago match the 20 markers that he's got. And so, so I think in the long term, there's going to be just like there was with, you know, CAP trying to work their minds around clinical whole genome sequencing. In the long term, the forensics community will begin to expand, right, as there's a framework for validation, how big a genomic panel can be. In the short term, what I described with the Golden State Killer is how people are doing things. There's been some interesting uh, stories, you know, this whole field is very new. So, you know, it only started last year and there's been some early success stories 
But there's already been at least a few cases. I believe there was a case of a, a Canadian couple that was murdered and the perpetrator was found through genetic genealogy. And again, in spite of the fact that it was an investigational test, I believe in that case, the judge allowed that data to be presented in court. And so there's a utility for it right now, but it doesn't take the place of something that's been vetted for decades. It's just a really great way to generate leads. It's like I go back to saying originally, you know, this is a good way to find people, but you'll confirm them in the legal sense with, uh, with CODIS testing. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. It's sort of creating a very wide mouth funnel in a way. It seems to me that, and I, you mentioned the Golden State Killer case, and, and I'm actually out in California now, and so you, you hear a fair bit about it still. That was obviously a success in terms of the application of DNA sequencing and genealogy to close a, a really pernicious case, but it also got a lot of ethicists thinking about what are potential safeguards or firewalls that we might need between various genealogical services, you know, yeah. but everyone in the world using 23andMe, you know, what kind of safeguards does a 23andMe customer need or, or what might be their constitutional rights? Uh, to avoid getting snagged in a, a criminal pursuit based on this kind of, you know, blending of, of forensics and, and um, DNA-based curiosity. Do you have kind of, do you wade in those waters? Is that something you think about? And if so, you know, what do you think about it? I mean, I, I definitely think about it. I'm a scientist, not a legal expert. I'll tell you my thoughts with that caveat in mind. The one important thing to notice is that as a 23andMe customer, you're, you're not at any risk, right? 23andMe doesn't work with law enforcement. 23 doesn't even allow uploads into their system. There's no way to access legally anyways 23andMe's database. 23andMe has been very clear uh, that their database is is uh, siloed and, and they do not work with law enforcement. Now, whether legally in the future they might be required to, I don't know. You know, it reminds me a lot of like, the kind of the early fights that internet service providers had in the in the olden days the internet service providers said the activity my uh, internet customer is my business and i will not share it and then after a while one subpoena second subpoena third subpoena they found some kind of framework to to share with law enforcement so i imagine if law enforcement um, were able to get a subpoena and compel a consumer genetic company to participate or answer questions that they might but um but 23 and me and ancestry have been very clear that with law enforcement so i don't i'm not aware that there's an imminent gotcha. concern um, where the concern is so imagine a scenario in which you tested at 23 and me and i tested at ancestry and we've looked for our relatives but we kind of want to know we want to know if we're related and and there's no mm -hmm. way for us to know because as i just said 23 and me and ancestry don't share their information right, right. So GEDmatch was one of the few tools that was built, it's the largest one I would say, that was built that's a, a kind of a public tool that allows you to bring your data from private companies into a common space. And so what can happen is I can, I can test an ancestry, you've tested a 23andMe, you get all the people that are related to us, then we can submit our profiles and, and that's an active process. You have to actively request to 23andMe, for example, to download your data. Gotcha. They tell you, you know, downloading your data, you're on risk, you download it, you upload it to GEDmatch, and then you can match against additional folks. And I'd be able to connect to you if you were on GEDmatch because we'd be in an open environment where our profiles were, were related. And it's very valuable for genealogists because you know, you'd hate to like run to the end of your tree or your matches just because you're stuck at one company. And at the same time, you don't want to pay to test with every company if you don't have to. So, so that's, that's kind of the origin story and why GEDmatch existed. And it's in GEDmatch, which um, has had fluctuating terms. Right now, it's more of an opt-in model. But it's in GEDmatch where they were able to, uh, to make connections in a lot of these uh, crimes or, or even missing persons or cold cases to relatives and possible relatives. So that's, that's kind of what happened there. And so is, is there, are, there, are there policy and ethical concerns? Absolutely. So for me, coming from a science background, I think the biggest issue is just informed consent. 
people that were consented or, or, or that participated voluntarily in resources and tools for genealogy, they, they, they of course need to be informed about what's going on if the terms will change and now law enforcement can participate. And I would say, um, you know, long term, I think there probably needs to be just dedicated resources to the law enforcement community. There are plenty of folks right. that would love to do their civic duty and contribute genomic data, either because they want to find missing folks in their family or because you know, people voluntarily submit to CODIS. I don't, I don't know if you know that. They voluntarily I, I didn't know that. That's Dakotas fascinating. Because, yeah. Yeah. I, I believe, I believe the Oklahoma attorney general, so a few months back, he made a, he made a pitch to folks to submit their data to CODIS because it helps, it helps them kind of close missing persons cases if more family members get involved. Now, again, I, I take objection with CODIS being used to find anything other than immediate relationships. But the, but the bottom line is that there are folks that for any reason or various reasons will want to contribute. And I feel like you might as well do that in an above board way. You build a resource and say, hey, if you'd like to participate in the resolution of cold cases or crimes, you know, violent crimes, say uh, sexual assaults or murders, then you can contribute your data and, and help solve a case. And there might be even really great ways to kind of show the return on that investment. Mm -hmm. Perhaps if your profile is used in a case, you'll get an alert and you'll know that you helped solve a case or bring an identity or a voice to someone that was basically nameless because they were lost to the time. They were just, you know, remains found somewhere. So I think, I think there are great ways to do that. Bottom yeah. line is, if you're going to if you're going to pivot resources from genealogy, you obviously want to be able to do that in a way that involves informed consent. And in, in the ideal scenario, you just build new resources. It takes time, but you build new resources that engage folks. You know, it's, to me, it sounds like, you know, kind of another version of the Neighborhood Watch program. So, in a way, sure. So, and, and you know what? There'll be people that don't want to participate, and that's fine, too. Um, mm -hmm. the, issue, the issue is just making sure that people know what they're signing up for. So as long as they're agreeing to it, and as long right. as they understand what they're agreeing to, this is all very tricky stuff and so you can't just ask someone hey would you send us your data you know we'll solve a crime like sure. you do want to walk through like you wouldn't any informed consent what are the risks what are the benefits what are the well and, and that's true for the genealogy services too i think a lot of people it probably is. didn't realize that their data might contribute to you know pharmaceutical development for example which i think is is a net good but obviously people have mixed feelings about the industry and about the profit motives and so forth i mean uh, most of the time most of the time that people complain in mass about how their information is being used whether it's genetic or otherwise that's usually an underlying symptom of not being on the same page right so right right so that that, that is, at minimum says there's some room for improvement on the consent mm -hmm. and, and that's true for like facebook you know people sure. people are getting surprised or upset about how their data is used on facebook how google uses their data so i think i think just making sure that people are really aware and are a active participant in the process I think we'll go a long ways for solving things. I think I think there's very few people that don't want to solve crimes, but nobody wants to just, you know, no one wants to wake up to a surprise, you know, and find out that tomorrow the terms yeah. of service will be this. And so it's the active consent part, and you really hit on it, the, the real engagement of the data provider. You see this now more more happening in you know consumer genomics and, and sort of genomic medicine space with companies like Luna, PBC, and and others where you know the goal is to essentially crowdsource these rich genomic databases with some incentive structure and kind of very kind of patient-centric or contributor-centric, you know, rights on, on what those data are being used for. But what excites me so much about what you're doing is because it kind of blends, well, my, my professional interest as a genomicist and a data scientist um, with my hobby interest in criminal justice. I don't know if you've read a book, uh, this book by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington. It's called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. It came out no. uh, last year, and it's, it's a beautifully written, horrifying story of 
sort of how forensics was misused in Mississippi for decades to wrongfully imprison people. And so what excites me about what Authorm is doing is I feel like you guys can address both type one and type two error. You can help find the actual perpetrators of crime where they're not discovered yet. And yeah. then there's the flip side, which is to potentially help exonerate people who are you know, being wrongly held or have been wrongly implicated. I love that application. We've, we've talked to the Innocence Project and um, bottom line is like, it's the same technology. You, the idea is like, if you should be in jail, then be in jail. And if you shouldn't, don't be in jail. And so we'd love to apply the technology either way to bring certainty and, and truth to a situation here. And there are situations where you have incomplete CODIS profiles, and sometimes the frequencies of the markers that you do have is not enough to establish, you know, a beyond reasonable doubt identity. And so, so that kind of that kind of uncertainty can lead to a lot of issues. And by the way, you know, there's there's always going to be aspects of error, right? I mean, no matter how good your DNA test is, you're still kind of at the mercy of how the data is collected at the scene, right? How it's treated along the way. So you don't eliminate every source of error when you do exhaustive testing. But I think exhaustive testing. Will go a long way in resolving ambiguities and smaller panels of tests. And so, so I'm excited to bring that to bear as well. And I will tell you, you know, there's two things that we really are concerned about. We definitely want the, the issue you brought up of wanting to know kind of like who the, who the true, you know, perpetrator of a crime is. But the other thing that we're concerned about, and this is something that kind of goes back to a regulatory discussion, is we're, we're really concerned about making sure that we don't have too many of the false negative kind of errors. So as people jump into the space, there's a tendency, like there was in medicine, when genomics first kind of got big in the medical testing space, to just go genealogy this and genealogy that. And a big aspect of what we do is, is actually making sure that the samples that we have are appropriate for testing and that they can be actually you know, tested and produce reasonable genetic information. There's um, there's a lot of issues, for example, with like, you know, SNP arrays. In this case of the Golden State Killer, I believe there was copious amounts of DNA. You know, there's not an issue there, but in a, in a lot of other tests, there was a lot of crime scenes. In a lot of tests for a lot of crime scenes, there's very small amounts of DNA. Usually the DNA is very old, it's degraded, it can be contaminated, it can be mixed in some cases. And so all those scenarios kind of add up and, and make it very challenging to get data from, from those samples. And it doesn't matter how you're testing. It doesn't matter if you're looking for CODIS markers. It doesn't matter if you're doing a microarray, if you're doing sequencing. As it turns out, sequencing long-term will be the best option because you know, sequencing is, is better at dealing with things like contamination, mixtures, and these other sorts of, of challenges. But I, I, worry, I worry that there's not enough work being done. And we're trying to do work in, in basically building reference materials, performance testing, and benchmarking how these processes work and how various platforms work at getting data. So it's a problem that worried me in the medical space. And uh, in my first startup in, in, in the medical space, we actually teamed up with NIST and helped build Genome in a Bottle. And that was basically a platform that does exactly what I'm discussing, but for mm -hmm. medicine. It was sure. a collection of reference materials and tools that would let you know if what you think you're sequencing is what you're sequencing. And it was a really great way to look at things like, you know, specificity and accuracy. That's something that needs to be built. We kind of need the Genome in a Bottle for forensics and uh, it's something I'd like to do for the community. That might be one of those great public-private sorts of partnerships that, that could emerge as this field matures. That's exactly what Genome in a Bottle was. It was mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a private uh, startup, mm -hmm. and there were some other uh, groups involved that were private, and this was obviously public. Mm -hmm. It was uh, academics at various universities, and a lot of work from a lot of people, and then a lot of public good that was generated from it, to where you know, you'll know you see like publications from the FDA, from CAP. They now cite Genome in a Bottle as, as a great way to basically validate medical sequencing. So that's, that's a huge win. And I see on your website that, that you guys employ um, an AI machine learning scientist. Tell me a little bit about where you see innovation 
in the actual data analytics playing a role here? And, and how do you think Optum is going to contribute to that? Yeah, so I told you about the laboratory side, which is like, how do you get DNA data out of a sample that others can't get DNA data out of? That's the first half of our value proposition. The obviously, the piece in the middle is Illumina, so that's, that's, not, that's not something that is, um, is secret or proprietary. The back end is the other interesting area, is how do you get more information out of a sample? And so right now, one thing that we're actively doing, and we do have uh, Steve Shu, who's a, a machine learning expert, working with us. He's he spent years working on polygenic scores, and in the medical space, everyone knows them as polygenic risk scores, you know, for cardiac disease, for other illnesses. And this is where you take, you know, tens of thousands or even more SNPs, and each one individually has a very minuscule contribution, but as a group, they can contribute and, and give you kind of an idea of the risk portfolio for various diseases or, or clinical states. And so there's also polygenic scores for physical traits, and um, and Steve Shu, I believe, demonstrated a uh, polygenic score for height, was able to predict height down to inches. So you can do really fine-grained mapping of physical traits based on these kind of markers. And so you can imagine, like, that, that's an attractive proposition. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get all the, uh, all the data or as much data as you can genome-wide from um, a sample, whether you find a lot of relatives or a few, whether you can actually triangulate the exact identity or not, you could at bare minimum break down the ancestry components and look to describe the, the physical appearance of that person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's super powerful. There's, uh, you know, you never know. If you're looking for someone that's missing or um, or someone that has, you know, maybe maybe some description might jog the memory of someone that might have been involved. Right. So, um, well, so, given, so the, think, given the documented shakiness of eyewitness testimony or the very or the lack of eyewitnesses in some cases, you know, this could be really game changing in terms of being able to have a profile of a crime scene after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's documented bias in, in, in using eyewitness testimony. Right. Like, for example, if you uh, witness something and the person you're witnessing is coming from another uh, genetic background, then, um, you know, in that case, you would have you'd have a, you, if someone comes from a different genetic background, you're, you're less likely to remember certain features. You're, it's easier to relate to someone and remember someone that, that looks more like you. And so obviously with genetic testing, that's not a problem that we're going to have, right? Genetic testing is, it has other biases, but genetic testing does not have a bias for, for background. And so just being able to describe accurately the ancestry of someone, I think is a real value. And it mm -hmm. complements the eyewitness testimony and the other things that you're, um, that you're able to gather in, in collecting evidence about the case. So again, when I think about this, it's very popular to talk about the Golden State Killer, mm -hmm. because here's an example where you were able to work an entire path to a triangulated identity. But that's not the only way to do things. There's so many other ways to bring value and to, um, and to help investigators. And so, you know, there's everything from pulling ancestry to, as we just discussed, physical traits, includes other things such as um, being able to uh, assess markers on the mitochondria, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that gives mm -hmm. you the maternal line, and you can use that to, at least in the exclusory sense, to exclude uh, females along the line. Y markers to, to include or exclude males. You can even infer, in some cases, surnames from Y markers, right? So there's, there's a lot of rich information to get even before you get to the genealogy database. This is, this is uh, really cool stuff, and, and I'm excited to learn about Othram more. In fact, when we're all descending on Houston for the uh, American Society for Human Genetics in, in October, it might be worth people's time to, to look you guys up. I don't know if you'll be at the conference, but you're just up the road in the Woodlands because there's so much crossover in the technologies and the, uh, the science behind the two. I um yeah so so we will be at ASHG and obviously you and I have been in this genomic space for a long time. I've been in the genomic space since the first human genome project. I've been working in this area for over twenty years. So ASHG is like a reunion for me, and I've already reached out to my friends and told them to come see what we're doing. 
Yeah. If you um, if you or anyone out of ACHG yeah. wants to see a forensics lab, it's quite a different experience. A forensics lab is a it's a very different experience than a medical lab. We have a beautiful facility that's completely locked down, but we have a lot of windows, a lot of glass. Do you do you have like blue mood lighting and and techno like they do in all the TV shows? We don't. We don't. We don't have the but we but we have a very nice futuristic CSI looking lab. Everything is painted white because uh, I'm not very good at design. <laughs> so kind of looks like a, sometimes I think it looks like a, a psychiatric facility, but um, or a hospital. But it a uh, beautiful space. We um, in our evidence collections room, for example, we don't even have drop ceilings. We have drywall ceilings. Mm-hmm. So we like basically like cubed out rooms. Yeah. And uh, and used it to to basically minimize. You know, when you work with really degraded or ancient DNA samples, we have an ancient DNA project working on right now. This mm-hmm. DNA is in such bad condition. Just breathing in the room, you know, fresh DNA could outcompete that reaction. Mm-hmm. So our, our lab techs completely suit up, head covers, uh, yeah. shoe covers, full. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's a very different experience to see a regulated and controlled forensic facility, one that you would use like for crime testing or right. even like academic ancestry DNA projects. Very different kind of approach than the approach. You know, we have a little teller window that goes between the rooms so we don't have to cross between them. Interesting. Very different experience than than being in a research or academic lab. And anyways, I could but tell you all day. For a dirty little secret, most say, people are wearing flip flops and don't use gloves. Just you know, I want to tell the myth <laughs> that academic labs are. Yeah, don't ever tell don't ever tell a compliance officer that people have flip flops. But um, yeah. But yeah, so if anyone is interested, um, I'm happy. We're going to be doing some tours during ASHG. So if anyone wants cool. to come see the lab, um, we are here. And, and you can pass my contact info around or they can reach out to us on our website and we're happily host tours for people that want to see it. We've had attorney generals from several states come through. We've had other state and, and higher level law enforcement folks come through and they've all had a blast. So it's a great facility. And by the way, I do want to point out, I believe at the moment we're the only forensics lab that is operating uh, whole genome sequencing equipment. So we have a NovaSeq, we've got um, some other equipment. So I don't mm-hmm. think there's anyone else right now in the country that runs a forensics lab and has a has a whole genome sequencing setup that's fascinating you know i'm really heartened to hear that that you have top law enforcement coming through i think one of the the real key challenges that's structural and maybe beyond Othram's purview to solve is that there's a whole lot of mixed incentives right like the the law enforcement are incentivized to lock people up and at least historically there's been a lot of abuse of that you know, where innocence hasn't mattered as much and then you have the other side the innocence project dna doe project and so forth that are really concerned with getting it right and um, i'm hoping that companies like Othram, who kind of sit in the middle of these stakeholders, can really help align the incentives where you can both have justice and have, have it right. We would love to build out the genome in a bottle for forensics. Mm-hmm. We want to build a kind of above board genetic program for folks that want to, you know, if, so if someone wanted to build like a genetic neighborhood watch, we'd contribute mm-hmm. to that. You know, as long as it was like upfront, this is a law enforcement angled kind of thing, even if it's to solve cold cases, right? Mm-hmm. You still want to tell people like the purpose of this database is to identify folks that may be closely or distantly related to you. And if there was a resource like that, whether there was like a genetic neighborhood watch or, or whatever, that's something we'd want to help out with. Um, the standards important to us. So yeah, we want to build up the technology. We want to be really good about defining the limitations and the kind of like the operating space in which technology can be valuable. And then we want to make sure it gets applied. And I think a lot of that is just like education and interaction. So I I love interacting with law enforcement. I trained at Baylor College of Medicine. I don't know a lot about law enforcement. And so I've been learning as I go. 
trying to understand what they need, what interests them, what doesn't interest them. I know genomics, and I'm, I'm trying to well, learn the other side so I can, I can bring them well, the value. Let me ask about that. I mean, so, so I, I love that you're brave enough to kind of dive in and start a company in, in a space that's somewhat new to you. Maybe you can kind of walk us through your, your biography. You were at Baylor, the mid-aughts to the, the late aughts. I think you finished up around 2010 in the Human Genome Sequencing Center. What's your career been the last decade? Like, how did you get from there as a genomicist to where you are today? So I guess I, I started out at UT Southwestern in Dallas. I was working in the Human Genome Project at the Genome Center there during the first project. I then went on to build uh, the first, you know, the first SNP chip, the first kind of SNP chip microarray technology at, um, at Southwestern. We built some array printers shortly after Pat Brown built them at Stanford. And then, and then from there, trained at Baylor, as, as you said. That was a biochemistry PhD. Was, there was no computer stuff or sequencing. I think the field had kind of stalled a little bit, right? Because they got a genome, but it was so expensive and time-consuming. Um, it was hard to imagine getting several genomes. But it was around the time that I was wrapping up my PhD, and that was 2007, when, um, when NextGen took off. First the 454, and then the Solid, and then, and then eventually the Illumina platform. And so all those things together kind of reinvigorated genomics, because now there's a way to feasibly get lots of genomes. And I did a, I did a postdoc with Richard Gibbs at the Baylor Genome Center. Um, had, a, had a blast, you know, crunching data on these Illumina sequencers. This is back when people were still arguing and defining the initial spec for SAM and BAM. And then... Um, um, and yeah, I took a faculty position at Virginia Tech. They had a new medical school and they were building a, a research center to pursue human genomics. And uh, it was from there that I built some of the work that I eventually spun out into Arpeggi. And that was a, a data analytics company for Illumina sequencing. And this was like back, even now, I think people struggle to take Illumina data and build medical reports and informative, you know, kind of reports from this. Back then, it was just kind of a wild west. And so we uh, teamed up with NIST, built some standards, built reporting platforms, and we were acquired by Gene by Gene. And so that brought me from, uh, you know, I, I moved to Virginia from, from Baylor, and then I ended up moving back to Houston. Total coincidence, um, because Gene by Gene, which operates Family Tree DNA, they were the first consumer genetics testing platform. They were based in Houston. So then I came back to Houston, um, actually the Woodlands, and had a great time at Gene by Gene, and then went off to do some other ventures. And primarily, most of what I did post Gene by Gene was medical. But you know, when I was at Virginia Tech, I had seen some presentations from folks at Quantico. They were they were just beginning to explore using the Ion Torrent platform to get like a little bit of like identity SNPs and phenotype SNPs from forensic samples. And and I asked them, I was like, why don't we just get the whole genome? And and they were like, okay, let's do it. How much is it? And I was like, well, it's about 20 or 30 grand that we can get everything. And, and they just laughed at me. So, so I, I actually had the origins for this idea in 2011 when I was at the university, but it just wasn't the right time. I mean, the, the sure. cost was outrageous and we didn't know a lot. So, you know, after I had uh, closed out a few other ventures, I took, a, I took two genomics to an exit and worked on some other projects. The NovaSeq was really attractive to me. It comes out and I'm like, wow, for the first time, we might have almost affordable sequencing, what they called the $1,000 genome. And so it was at that point that I revisited the idea and eventually met with some like-minded folks, many of which I've worked with for a decade that wanted to go, I, I said, let's go take all this medical technology and consumer technology and apply it to an underserved space. There's a lot of people doing cancer testing and it's valuable, but I just don't want to be the, the 50th company that does cancer testing or, you'd be, or whatever You'd other be the 50,000 at this point, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I, um, I really wanted to make a difference. I've been thinking about this area ever since I uh, was at Virginia Tech. You know, Virginia Tech's a cool school. I was NIH funded, but I, it's, it's very funny. At Baylor, everyone's NIH funded. At right. Virginia Tech, nobody is. I was like the unicorn NIH fundee. Everyone <laughs> else had funding from the, you know, the military. The DOD, defense. and sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was really exciting. 
exciting to see a whole other aspect of science that I've never seen at Baylor. And, and I, I don't know, there's an appeal to being able to do something for our country, to be able to build technology, like I said, that, that can bring meaningful value, even if it's not in medicine. You know, the cool thing about working in, in forensics is that even if you solve one cold case, you've brought value to an entire family that has lost that person. So, so many people affected by one case solved. And then even look at like a criminal case, you know, you can take the kind of view, well, you're, you're catching someone and imprisoning them. But if you find the right person that committed a crime, how many other people were persons of interest, suspects right. over the years? All those people now exonerated and released. And of course, the family of the victim and, and the victim themselves, if they're still alive, able to get peace and kind of resolution. So I like that the bar is really low for making a difference. If you do your job right, you don't have to work a lot of cases to bring tremendous value to tremendous amounts of people. Not to mention, you know, just the effort and time that law enforcement spends crunching through uh, these cases from like investigation through prosecution. So anything you can do to make their job easier so they can actually get through cases. I don't mm -hmm. know, it just seems like you're doing a lot of good and it's a space that's empty. The, the, we're the only, like I said, we're the only forensics lab doing sequencing and the market penetration here is, is virtually non-existent. This, it reminds me a lot of like the, I, I sometimes tell my investors jokingly that we're like the, we're the AOL of forensics because um, AOL of forensics, you know, sequencing because it's, it's like it's like in the 90s the affinity was really high but no one knew what the internet was sure so if you got the cd in the mail and you tried it you loved it but if you um if you didn't you didn't really know what it was so we have really high affinity when we show people what we can do mm -hmm. and we take samples that they thought were like basically lost and never usable and we can get information from them they're over the moon and, and they, you know and we have we transact and we move forward but there's definitely a, a really big educational component and most people we meet beyond seeing something in the news have never really been a customer Customer or first-hand experience technology. So we're, it's actually worse than the AOL of forensic genomics. We're like, we're the AOL of forensic genomics, except instead of mailing the CDs, we, we actually fly to different places and hand deliver the CD. <laughs> but, and, and so that's, that's not very scalable in the begin with, but I will tell you that it's paid off because yeah. you don't have to bring a lot of value before all of a sudden you have a number of inbound leads. And, and usually these cases are solved by groups, right? And so you bring a value to someone and the other people that were even tangibly involved, they remember. And the next time they have a case, they call you up and they say, I heard you helped my friend do so-and-so. Can you help me with this project? We've had a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting traction just by doing some initial work and then and then having other folks come in and say, I, I heard through the grapevine or from a friend of a friend that you um, that you helped someone and we'd like to get some help as well so that's where we're at i mean it's it's an exciting space i i love i love being in a space where there's very little competition <clears throat> Yeah, so. well, you, you just described, you know, this is this is startup go to market 101, right? First, you do a lot of things that don't scale. And even Paul Graham of Y Combinator has written beautiful essays on why you do that initially. You make your first customers insanely happy and then word of mouth gets things moving. And it sounds like you guys are really doing something groundbreaking. So it should the rest should take care of itself. Yeah, I mean, generally, generally startups, every startup has to build product and build sales. But there, there are kind of two, like, I like to divide them into two groups. There's, there's sales driven companies where your product is maybe a little bit more, the competitive landscape is such that you spend a lot of time differentiating your product, more of a sales process. You're saying, here's something you understand, but we do it better. Like Peter Thiel would say, it's 10X better, you know? So yeah, it's yeah, yeah. really better, you should use it. Then there's the other side that's more product driven. And there you're focusing on product. There's, there's not as much sales because there's literally no competitor. So there's basically no one that will do what we're doing. Sure, but Peter Thiel also coined that one and that's the zero to one transition, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I would say we're, we're definitely more on the product-driven side right now. I think as, as the technology gets out there, people that are educated will move, will, will shift to a little bit more sales. We, we don't do a lot of sales right now. I mean, my, my, my sales consists of a, a very simple website. We don't advertise. Where would we advertise? <laughs> we, just, we just do the work that we can do, and we hope that the word gets out uh, little by little. I will help get the word out the best I can. David, thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope that I uh, can swing by and see what your CSI lab looks like when I'm in here. Yeah, we'd love to have you. We'll, we'll get special lights just for you. Fantastic. This has been episode 15 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.